All right. Well, good morning. Um, yeah, it's always good. Uh, it's good to be together, to sing, and to pray, and to study, in all the ways that we worship together. Uh, so we want to continue as we kind of transition uh, from worship through singing and praying to studying God's Word. Um, so, yeah, if you've got your Bible open, Acts chapter 11, kind of moving on through the, uh, the book of Acts. Um, if you are here as a guest, or maybe here for the first time in a minute, we have been studying through uh, the book of Acts. We're kind of walking our way through and, and hitting most of it, kind of studying it in a systematic way. Um, just a real quick catch up. So the book of Acts is, uh, like, so Luke writes this account of what happens after Jesus is, so he writes this first account, which is the book of Luke, of the story of Jesus' life, and then he writes the book of Acts uh, that tells the story of what happens after Jesus is, is uh, crucified and then resurrected and ascends back to heaven. Kind of how does this play out and all the things that Jesus taught uh, and commanded and, and led out in, what does it look like after he's gone? And we see uh, the gospel spreads out, and that's one of the things that we're looking at this morning. So um, so yeah, we're in Acts chapter 11, like I said, uh, so there's a, a few things that are happening. Last week, really the last couple of weeks, we were in Acts chapter 10, and we, um, we were kind of focused in on the story with Peter and Cornelius, and the way that God really works in Peter, um, and, and ultimately in the church, to see this, this uh, spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, what Luke does, right, so Luke is writing this orderly account of the history. So Luke jumps in this history uh, over to something that's happening in Antioch, right? And so he, he kind of catches us up to what's going on and what we're about to do. Uh, it shifts from Peter back to Paul, and we'll see Paul show up back here again today. Uh, so real quickly, before we dive in and read the text... Um, I do want you to have just a little bit of a picture of kind of what's going on. Uh, so one of the things that we see, Acts chapter, um, really Acts chapter 1 at the very beginning, right? Jesus, one of the things he says is you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this has a bit of a geographic progression, right, as the gospel spreads out uh, and, and begins moving. And so what we see, let's see my little laser pointer. So Jerusalem, this is where this, all this starts. Uh, this is where things happen uh, at the very beginning. Uh, and so where he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, kind of the area around a little north here, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, which is a little further north in the region up here, which is a different, um, a, a little bit of a different people group uh, than what was going on here. It's kind of uh, a mixture of Jew and Gentile of this kind of half, uh, really thought of as kind of like they're thought of as half-breeds of half Jew and Gentile from a lot of um, the history that their people had. But what we're looking at today is that the gospel, where we're picking up today, is in Antioch, which is right here. Um, so it's 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It's, it's, uh, I think it's 18 miles off of, um, off of the Mediterranean Sea. On, there's a river that kind of comes down, uh, flowing towards the Mediterranean. And that's where Antioch is. Antioch was a big city. It was the third largest city in the known world at this point. Uh, some scholars think it had as many as 600,000 people, and it's a big city. 
there's a blending of cultures, right? So you had this, really you had about five cultures that are coming together that all kind of form this melting pot is a pretty American idea, more of a mosaic of cultures that kind of happen together in the same place in Antioch. And it will be uh, a, a hub, we'll see this as we go forward, that Antioch will be a, a hub for Gentile Christianity uh, as we go forward. So let's dive into the word. Uh, and really we're looking at, there's four really clear points in the text. I'm going to try to make all of them. Uh, fairly quickly, and there's a couple things that we can draw out of this, um, yeah, that we can learn from and apply. So, open up with me, Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19, we'll read 19 through 21, uh, and then stop there. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word... Um, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. This is to the Greeks, uh, Greek-speaking, non-Jews, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Okay, so we've got just this little section here that is really significant. So the gospel comes to... Antioch. So we talked about a few specifics of the city, right? Of this, a, a pretty large city. It's the third largest city uh, in the known world this time in the Roman Empire, um, and it is this uh, this kind of gate between the east and the west, and the Syrian desert meets the Mediterranean kind of cosmopolitan, you know, kind of mix. And this is what's going on. It all it all meets up right there on the uh, the. Orontes River, I believe, right there uh, in Antioch. But really the question is, how did it get there? How did the gospel get from Jerusalem uh, to Antioch? And so we see a couple of things, right? Luke reaches back to a phrase that he's used before, and he says, those who were scattered. Those who were scattered. Look at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen... If you've been around for a minute, you've been with us through the study of Acts, we jump way back uh, into Stephen was part of this early church. He's faithful. He's a teacher. He's really uh, was serving in this particular uh, role in the church and taking care of the widows and and that kind of thing. Stephen is teaching, uh, and ultimately he is killed for his faith. Right, So Stephen is martyred. And on that day, the text tells us, on that day there arose a great persecution against the church. Um, and so in the, in the face of this persecution, uh, a great number of them are scattered. Really what is recorded is that, is that all of them are scattered. And what it looks like is that these are Hellenistic uh, Jews, Greek-speaking Jews that had made their way uh, to uh, Jerusalem and that they were living there for some amount of time. But there was a great persecution that arose over Stephen. Now this is one of those spots where it's, it's easy for us to read that and to not feel the weight of what it is, right? Those that were scattered over the persecution is like this reference to who, who's doing this and, and how the gospel got there. But if we think about that for a minute, what would it look like, what would it look like for something to happen uh, in our church, in our community, that was drastic enough for you to move you know, 300 miles at this time is a, 
is a big deal. This is not like the Bartlett, y'all just moved, what, 500 miles? You know, and you did it in, in a weekend, really, right? Load up a truck and get there. And even, even in a, a kind of a slow move, you can do it in a weekend, right? With bad weather and all those things. This was not that. So you think, like, what would it take? I mean, imagine this, of, of that something happened to, I don't know, pick on Chris Kellermeyer. Something happens to Chris, and Chris is faithful. He's part of our church. He's faithful, and he's teaching, and then he's murdered. He's killed. He's martyred, and then when that happens, it sparks off in us. All these different people are being attacked, so much so that the majority of us leave Noblesville and are scattered to the wind, right? And maybe we go north to Chicago. Maybe you go south, God's country, down Memphis, Mississippi, down that area, right? We go different places, you leave family, and you leave home, and you leave jobs, and you leave in really in fear of persecution to try to take care of your family. Like, so this is part of what's going on, right? We've got to see that, that it's easy to read this and to not feel the weight of it. So part of the way that the gospel got there is, is, is with those who were scattered. So that's a little bit of the backdrop of what's going on. We see they're named, uh, that men of, or, or this is as much as they're named, that there are some men... Uh, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists. They're preaching, uh, preaching the gospel to the Greeks. They're preaching Jesus, um, this Jesus who their faith is in, this Jesus who is the object of um, or is, is the common denominator of persecution, right? They're not just persecuting people because they look funny. They're not just persecuting people because of the language they spoke. They're persecuting people because they said that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and he's the only God, right? So that's part of what's happening. Uh, and then we just keep walking through the text, and we see that the, the hand of the Lord was on them, is what Luke indicates, which is really uh, the main the the main factor here in the effectiveness of their witness and the effectiveness of what they're doing. We see that God was on this. This is not just some rogue thing that's going on, that the hand of the Lord was on this, and that a great number, uh, a great number of people in Antioch believed and turned to the Lord. Right? So clearly we see this in these three verses in the text of that this is what happens and how the gospel comes to Antioch. But there's a couple of things that we can learn. So you could, like we could read this. You sit down and you read the text. And you, of course, you're like, you get to this list really easy because this comes straight from the text. But there's a couple of things that we need to do. If we're studying the word, part of what has to happen, whether you are here on a Sunday morning or on a random morning of the week when you get up and read your Bible, what needs to happen is not just read it and make a list, but to read it and to sit and be engaged and for your mind to be there and not to be thinking like, well, i got to go to work in a half hour, i got to do this, and my kids are going crazy, you know, like, and, and our attention and our affections can be so distracted and attached to everything else, and we read our Bible, and if all we ever do is make this list, then we, we miss it. Right, so there's a couple of things that we want that I want to draw out, and that I want you to see uh, in this uh, that come out that comes out of this text. One is um, one is this: is that God redeems suffering. That God redeems suffering. It's not meaningless. It's not wasted. But it is suffering. 
And we see this here, and it, will, it creates for us a good principle that we ought to walk in. Right? God redeems suffering. It is not meaningless, and it is not wasted. They were suffering. There was hardship and trial. Their friends had been killed. Their, their family, maybe, had, had dealt with persecution. They themselves had dealt with persecution to the point that they were scattered, that they grabbed what they could grab, they took their stuff, and they left. And they went 300 miles, 300 miles to the north to get away from what's happening in Jerusalem. This is no insignificant move, right? But we see in the midst of their suffering, what happened, or look at what didn't happen. God didn't immediately stop persecution. He didn't stop it. And it's not that he was blind. And it's not that he was powerless. He let it happen. And in a glorious way that he does with our suffering still, he redeems it. And he uses it for the expansion of the kingdom and for his glory and even for their good. Right? He uses it. Now this, this gives us a principle that we can latch on to. Right? That God redeems suffering and that we can trust God. That we can trust God. In the hard times, we can trust God. Because... Because He knows us and because He redeems the hardships that we walk through so that we can trust God. Now, this is a big deal because, look, most of us in the room will not face persecution like this, but we do suffer, right? I think we can all pretty quickly agree with that. We do suffer. That might look like the loss of a loved one. It might look like a battle with depression. It might look like disease that seems to plague you. It might look like persecution at some point. It might look like anxiety. It might look like a host of things that, that brings on suffering in our lives when things are hard and it is hard to walk through. And in the midst of the hardship that we walk through, we can say, I trust God and God redeems suffering. And I don't know why. I don't know why God hasn't taken this out of my life. And I don't need to know why. But God redeems suffering and He's using this for His glory. And our prayer is, God, use this. God, use it. God, redeem it. God, shape me into what You want me to be. Use this in my life. Use this for Your glory. Whatever it might be. Right? Now this is huge. To recognize that it's not wasted, it's not meaningless, we can trust God. Now here's the deal. This, this happens most consistently in the context of the local church, like of being reminded of this, right? Being reminded of God redeems suffering, we can trust God, we can walk through that. Right? Like this happens and you're reminded of this and you can walk with this, with this worldview uh, and when walking through this together. That happens most consistently in the context of the local church. Right? Acknowledging that we need each other. And this is part of the reason we need each other. is because when you're suffering, sometimes you need someone to say, God is not 
powerless. God redeems suffering. God often uses this for the expansion of the kingdom. You can trust God. Put one foot in front of the other. We need each other to say that. We need each other to, to sometimes to cry with each other. Sometimes to sit and listen. And sometimes to speak. Right? Sometimes to say that very thing. And it happens best in the context of the church. This is part of the reason why God has set it up the way he has. Part of the reason that you ought not date the church, but you ought to be committed to it. Right? That you need to be in this. You need to know each other. You need to love each other. And we, when we do this, when we do life together, when we do life together, then, then we can walk on through suffering. We walk on. We put one foot in front of the other with brothers and sisters around us to say, trust God. Trust God. He's redeeming this. It's not wasted. It's not for nothing. God's at work. It helps us to walk. It helps us to walk. I had a conversation with a guy on Friday. I'm not going to tell you his name, but he's not part of our church. And he is walking through suffering, and he has been walking through suffering for some time now. And he's alone. He's alone. In fact, he's, he's in a church, but he's so afraid of being wounded that he's not connected. That he puts up this defense for everybody because if I don't know you, then you can't hurt me. And he's dying. He's struggling. Because dude is in the midst of this. He's in the midst of this like where he should be, but he's not connected to it. Right? Because it doesn't help to just be in the room. It doesn't help to just be able to check that box and say, yeah, I went to church on Sunday. What helps is to sit in someone's living room and to do life together, to study the word together, to pray together, to walk together, to live out the gospel face to face with each other. Right? That you can speak into my life and I can speak into yours. So, God redeems suffering. It's not meaningless. It's not wasted. We can trust God. Here's another thing that we see from this text of the gospel coming to Antioch. Is we see faithfulness in the midst of, of obscurity and discomfort. This is something for us to model. Something for us to learn from. Faithfulness in the midst of obscurity and discomfort. Faithful. We see that they were faithful because these brothers are preaching Jesus. That's what faithfulness looks like. Right? That's what faithfulness looks like. It's not only not doing this list of bad things that we ought to avoid. That's not Christianity. That's not primarily what Christianity is about. Right? It's not this list of all these, of all these don'ts. Right? They're faithful in that they are preaching Jesus in the midst of what they're doing, right? They're faithful in obscurity. Look, there were no apostles here. There was nobody here that we know of. There's no apostles, and we have no names. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Right? They're in obscurity. Historically, biblically, we don't know who they are. This is not like they're not in the midst of this with these named leaders in the church and they're like they're the leaders of a movement. They're faithful to preach Jesus in obscurity and in discomfort. These men and women, brothers and sisters were displaced by persecution. They had been displaced by persecution. Now some of them, it tells us, they were from Cyprus and Cyrene, which weren't too far away. But they had left, they had made a home in Jerusalem you know, and they're scattered by persecution. So they're displaced by persecution. So they were faithful in the midst of obscurity and discomfort. A couple things that we see by this. So let's keep moving. 
So look, now we see, let's keep reading a little bit, and we see Barnabas. Barnabas, uh, Barnabas is the man. Barnabas is a beast, dude. Like a lot of times we look over Barnabas, and he's not this, uh, this huge character like Peter and Paul, but Barnabas, this has been so convicting and encouraging to me this week. So read with me verses 22 uh, down to 26. So look what happens. The report of this, the report of what's happening in Antioch, the report of a great number coming to the Lord, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, 300 miles away. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So Barnabas, they're going to check things out. What's happening? When he came, look at this, I love this. When he came, he saw the grace of God. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Okay, same deal. Like we get this picture of what's happening. Right? And we see what, like we learn what, uh, what Barnabas is doing. Right? So the reason he came, he, they tells us that. The church in Jerusalem heard what's going on in Antioch. So they send Barnabas, a representative. Barnabas uh, is a, a, obviously like this uh, man of repute and, and has good reputation in Jerusalem. We've seen him a couple different times now. Uh, and so he comes and he sees the grace of God. Right? And he was glad. He was glad. Like that little insignificant sounding phrase, it was so encouraging to my soul this week, right? And so convicting to my soul, right? How often, how often do we not have this as a testimony? How often do I not have this as a testimony, right? I show up, and a lot of times, a lot of times, instead of, instead of seeing the grace of God, I'll see the way this is off, or I'll pick this thing apart, or I'll see what's wrong with it. Right? And Barnabas does that as well, but what's recorded is that he, he sees the grace of God, he was glad, he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So he sees what's happening, he's glad, and look what Barnabas does, he exhorts them, he encourages them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. What's their purpose? What's the, we, we think here, it's like he's reminding them to be faithful and to walk in purpose, to walk in steadfast purpose. The purpose is this, to live as redeemed men and women. That's their purpose, to live as redeemed men, to love God and to make disciples. This is their purpose, to preach Jesus. And that's what they're doing, right? That's what they're doing. And he says, keep going, be faithful, walk in faithfulness to the Lord with steadfast purpose, preach Jesus, Love God. Make disciples. These things, this is the most important. This is the purpose of the church. It tells us that he was a good man. He was a good man that was full of the Spirit and of faith. We see also in the midst of this interaction that Barnabas recognized their needs and his limitations. It's a good thing to apply also, right? Like, we're not the hero. We can't save the day. We can't solve all the problems. He, but he steps into them. He recognizes their needs and his limitations. And he goes to find Saul. He goes to find Saul in Tarsus. Now look, here's something we need to talk about for a minute. 
uh, just in this to make sure that we kind of understand what's happening. We read the book of Acts as if this all happens in a weekend, you know, or something where it's just like bam, 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 and it just like flies through and we can lose sight of what's happening. What it looks like, what most scholars, commentators believe is that uh, the last time we saw, we saw Saul, I'm calling Paul, the last time we saw Paul, um, he was, remember what happened, right? So Acts chapter 9. Uh, he was uh, he's, he's on the road to Damascus, bright light, God breaks in, put his nose in the dirt, uh, saves this dude. We see faith, and then, and then he, he's this kind of back and forth, right? So he's, he goes into the desert in Arabia, looks like, for three years. Then he's back in Damascus, then he's, they threaten to kill him. He goes to Jerusalem, they threaten to kill him there after he's there for a few days. And they send him from Jerusalem to Tarsus. And what it looks like is that that was 8 to 10 years ago. 8 to 10 years ago from when Barnabas and all the boys at Jerusalem sent Paul out. 8 to 10 years have passed at this point. And now Barnabas is in Antioch alone. He sees the grace of God. He's glad. He recognizes their needs. He recognizes, and and part of obviously what he recognizes, he recognizes that they need teaching. They need to understand. They need to understand the Old Testament, like like the covenants and the promises and the prophecies. They need to understand. They need to understand the law, like the role of the law. Who's the best guy that I know that can do that? Ten years ago, we sent Saul to Tarsus. He's the best best teacher I know. I'm going to go get him. Right? That's what's happening. So he goes and he gets Saul. And he brings him back to teach. And this is what they do. They meet with the church. They gather with the church for a year. They meet and they teach them. They taught a great number of people is what's said. Right? So that's what's happening. He, he spends a year meeting and teaching them. Here's a principle that we see. So we can glean that from the text. We just read through that. But here's one of the things, like the way that this applies to me and to you is this, is that God uses brothers and sisters to see and to encourage and to speak truth, to teach, to edify, to instruct oftentimes. God uses people in your life that way. God uses people in your life that way. But God's how God used Barnabas, Right? God used Barnabas for all these brothers and sisters in Antioch. And and God just dropped Barnabas in there, right? He's like, hey, here you go. They didn't ask for Barnabas. The church in Jerusalem sends him. God apparently is in that. The hand of the Lord is on him. He's full of spirit. But a principle that we see is that God uses men and women to do that. Brothers and sisters. God uses primarily brothers and sisters. Those that are in the faith to speak truth into your life. Not just random folks. Sure, God could do that. God could use a donkey if he wants to. But when we're walking together and we're committed to the church together and when you and I interact as brothers and sisters doing life together face to face, God uses us in each other's lives. Right? So here's the deal. Some of the time... Like, sometimes you need to receive these things. Sometimes you need to receive these things. We need to swallow some pride and listen to somebody. Right? Listen, I'm not saying you've got to listen to me. This primarily happens to each other. 
Right? This happens in the context, a lot of times, of a small group together. It happens in the midst of relationships that are in the midst of the church where someone can speak truth into your life, can see what God's doing, maybe when you don't see what God's doing. Right? That can encourage you, that might can straighten you out, that might can boost you up, that might can say, hey, you need to come help me get involved in this ministry because you're better at this than me. Right? The same way Saul did with Bar- where Barnabas did with Saul. So sometimes you need to receive these things and sometimes you need to give them. Sometimes you need to give them. This takes being engaged. It takes being engaged in the church. Lean in that this is my church. This is our church, right? So the language changes a little bit when you do that from going like, yeah, I go to this church to this is my church. Right? When this is my church, when this is our thing, then what happens is like we lean in. And sometimes what it looks like is when, when you recognize that I'm having a hard time, a hard season, a season of depression or suffering or whatever, that you lean into my life and you recognize what God is doing. You speak into that. Right? Or sometimes you go, Matt, you are really good at this and I need to pull you into this. You're better at this than me. Right? And that happens primarily with each other. But it, it doesn't happen on accident. It doesn't happen by treating the church as a consumer. It happens by treating the church as a brother and a sister, as a participant, that this is mine. Right? That we lean into this thing together. So, that's what we see with Barnabas uh, here. An incredible model for us, an incredible model for us um, in that regard. Now, I've got a roll because I'm 30 minutes in. Here he goes. Two other, two other things that we'll see really quickly. Uh, look at verse 26. Great little verse. And in Antioch... In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Loaded. That could be its own sermon. Uh, so, look, here's the deal. We see a new vocabulary, a new vocabulary that's used. That these disciples were so countercultural and Christ-centered, they were that to such an extent uh, that it shapes. Uh, that is shapes. I don't know who typed that. Uh, that it shapes the vocabulary in Antioch. It shapes the vocabulary in Antioch. Look, here's the only thing that I really want you to see. This is our heritage. This is our heritage. This is where we come from. This is why we're called Christians. Now, the word Christian in our day and age and really through the last 1,500 years of history has become a junk drawer word that means a whole lot of different things. Right? But our heritage is that they were so distinctly Christ-centered and countercultural that it changed the vocabulary. Right? So like, if we can step out of the term the way it's used a little bit now and recognize that this is our heritage, this is a big deal. Because here, here's how it works. Like, if you feel like you don't fit, if you feel a bit homeless in the culture... You feel like an exile or a sojourner that the, the things that our culture values you don't value and the things that you value the culture doesn't value. Take heart. You're in good company. Right? Because they called them something different. Right? Because they recognize these people that like the little Christ, the Christ ones. Right? Because they won't shut up talking about the Christ. They keep talking about that Jesus is the Messiah. And they're weird, and they, this, this term is really like, it's not a term of endearment, right? They're called this. It's, it's similar to the way that we would talk about a cult, right? This, this cult of this weird whatever, right? That's what's happening. So when we feel homeless, when we feel like an exile or a sojourner, we're in good company. 
This is our heritage, right? Um, this is great uh, topic of conversation in whatever small group you might be in, a men's group, a women's group, a, any whatever group you're in, family, over lunch, uh, is to, to look at this. The Christians in Antioch live distinctly Christ-centered lives. They live distinctly Christ-centered lives in such a way that it affected the vocabulary. How do we live Christ-centered lives? How do we, what does that look like? How do we do that? Great topic of conversation for lunch or for your group. And what are we known for in the community? If they were going to call us something, if they are going to call us something, what would they call us? I don't know. My intention is not to kick you around as much as to say it's, good, it's a good topic of conversation. Last thing, and I'm landing the plane, and we're going to respond and, and roll on. Uh, fourth, the fourth point here that's clearly in the text, look at me, uh, or look with me in verse 27 through 30. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold, foretold by the Spirit there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it by the elders, uh, by, to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now look, we can get off the rails here a little bit uh, and get lost in this idea of like, whoa, a prophet shows up and foretold the future. Like, is that still happening? What's going on? That's a different conversation for a different day. If you like that kind of stuff and you want to talk about it, come find me. The main emphasis here is not so much like it doesn't seem weird that that happens. Uh, but, but what we do see is that uh, they have a genuine concern for the brothers and sisters in Judea. So we see like a famine is foretold and they are concerned. They're concerned for their brothers and for their sisters that are in Judea. Right? And out of their concern, what happens uh, is that they pool their resources and they send them to the church in Judea. Right? So, pretty straightforward. Um, the, the principle to pull out of here is that a healthy church, a healthy church is quick to give and quick to send out, that a healthy church, healthy steps in maturity are marked by generosity and open-handedness. Right? So we see that in this text. All the way through, I'm done. There's no more slides, I guess. I'm done. Uh, but look, here's, here's what we want to take away. What we want to take away from this stuff is like looking at, we read the text and we, and we read it straightforward and just kind of right through it and we can pull things out or we can, we can make a list of the things that happen. But when we are engaged and we lean in and our, our minds are engaged in this, what we see is that, man, God redeems suffering, Right? God redeems suffering. That faithfulness, that they were faithful in the midst of obscurity and discomfort. That God uses brothers and sisters to see and encourage, to speak truth and teach us. Right? That Christians live a distinctly life, uh, distinctly Christ-centered lives and that this is our heritage. And that a healthy church is quick to give and send out and live open-handed. Right? And so wherever you are, whether you are in the midst of suffering and you need to be reminded that you can trust God. Or whether you're taking, you're taking steps in maturity and you need to recognize, right, of living a generous, open-handed life. Or whether you need to be a Barnabas or receive a Barnabas. Wherever you might be, right? We want to take some time to respond to that. 
We don't want to read this. We don't want to read it just as if it's some intellectual exercise that we just break down what's there. This is the word of God. This is what we believe. This is the word of God, that God that God speaks to us, that his word is living and active, that this is a Holy Spirit kind of thing, right? Where the spirit of God that dwells in us, that he, that he, he teaches us this way, he convicts us this way, he uses his word to shape us and to line us up with his will, to line us up with the image of his son, right? That's what we want to do. So we're going, to, we're going to take a few minutes to respond. So I'm going to pray for us and kind of hand this off. Brad's going to lead us in a time of response in, in a few different ways that we can respond together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and for the way that you teach us through it. God, I'm so grateful. So grateful that we can, that we can know these things that happened in, in Antioch 2,000 years ago almost. Lord, I'm thankful for, for the way that you redeem suffering. God, that it's not wasted. It's not meaningless. But that you use it for your glory. Lord, help us. Help those among us that are suffering. God, to walk in that. And to, to be able to have joy even in the midst of that knowing that you redeem it, knowing that you use it for our good and for your glory. Lord, help us to be faithful, to preach Jesus, even in the midst of obscurity and discomfort, if that's where we find ourselves. God, I'm, thank you. I'm thankful for, for the great testimony of Barnabas. Lord, use me as a Barnabas. Use us as, as Barnabas. God, to be encouraging and to be glad about what you're doing. And all the things that we see that he did. Lord, help us to receive that when we need it. Help us to give that when we can. God, may our lives be particularly marked by and oriented around Jesus. Lord, help us as a church for Bible-saturated or Christ-centered and Bible-saturated, not to just be some slogan that we throw around haphazardly, God, but to orient our lives around the person and work of Jesus, our, our great King and Savior. God, may that be our, our primary marker. God, that that be our hope and our song, our anthem. And that's our story. Is that Jesus changes who we are. He took us from being dead in our trespasses and sins to being alive. From being wretched to being righteous. Lord, to help us in these moments, in the next few moments ahead, Lord, to respond well as an act of worship in all that we do, in the way that we think, in what we say, and how we act, and how we react. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We pray in his good name. Amen.